Hi, and welcome to the second chapter, the podcast where Kristen Duffy, the founder and producer behind Slackline Productions, that's me, talks to women who started the second, third, or even fourth or fifth chapter in their lives and careers after the age of 35. If you're enjoying the second chapter, remember to leave us a rating or review. It helps others to find us, and then they can enjoy it too. Hello, and thank you for joining me for this week's episode of the second chapter. I'm your host, Kristen Duffy. Now, emergency medicine isn't usually a laughing matter, unless you're Stefania Lucari. Stefania spent years training and excelling through medical school to become a doctor, only to decide to pursue her dream of acting and comedy. Today, this exceptional woman is finding a way to do both, sometimes with hilarious results. In some ways, medicine and art are not that separate. There's a huge parallelism that sometimes is underestimated, which is ultimately both medicine and art are centered around people and the human stories. Mm. And that's, that's the beauty of it. Hi, Stefania. Welcome. It's so nice to have you here. Hi. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. You are Italian. Yes. <laughs> Did you know that? You're Italian. Were you aware? Um, actually, I approached you to come on the podcast because I'm so fascinated with your career mix, doctor, actor, slash comedian. But I wanted to ask you about being Italian and what brought you here. So maybe we can start a little bit further back. Did you originally qualify as a doctor in Italy? Yeah, so once upon a time, <laughs> I went to medical school in Italy. So what brought me here? I, I first came to London when I was a teenager. I didn't speak any English at all, but I absolutely fell in love with London. And the beautiful thing is, after many years, I've been here for almost a couple of decades now, I'm still in love with the same things, which is I felt London was so multicultural and the diversity. I was so young and I was like, oh my God, I was in the tube and everybody looked like from a different country. And that completely warmed my heart. And I, and I felt, wow, I can see the world by being here. So here we go. Then I went back to Italy. That was just a little holiday. I decided I better study some English now. And I studied English while I was studying medical school. And as soon as I graduated, I came over. So I did my specialty training in anesthetics and intensive care here in London. Then I got into acting. How long in Italy or between Italy and London did it take you to do your doctor training? Oh, wow. Endless. <laughs> lots, lots. 49 exams later and many years. So it's a six years medical school and then here the specialties. I mean, it wasn't a straight path. And then I took a couple of years to go traveling and then I went back to it. But any specialty training is anything between five and eight years generally. So yeah, I trained for a long time <laughs> and I've been practicing um, for a long time as well. Since I got into acting, which was 10 years ago, I've been uh, freelancing in medicine. So my main career at the moment is acting, but I still work and I practice as a doctor. One, because I love it. Two, because it's a great inspiration for stories and um, human connections. And also three brings money. <laughs> you answered so many of my questions because I think one of the main things I thought of, first of all, did your doctor training in Italy directly transfer over here? So pretty much you were already qualified as a doctor and then you just had to do the specialist training. I say just. Not just. <laughs> That's yeah, yes, yes, it did, it did. So the pre-Brexit situation was quite straightforward for uh, Europeans doctors. So how qualifications were automatically recognized, we didn't need any working visa. At the time also, because I was so passionate about coming to England, I had 
basically I went through medical school in Italy with that dream and passion inside. So alongside of uh, studying English, I also arranged some medical students attachment. So I studied in Oxford for a few months, in Southampton. So I got British references. I had an insight of the system. So basically the moment I graduated, because I was also quite lucky to be quite strong academically with publications and a degree with honors, I was like, okay, I'm ready. And I was very lucky to go to get my job straight away in England. Now, I was ready on the paper. In practice, <laughs> I was less ready. Not so much. My first job was an accident emergency. And it was traumatic, traumatic. I would cry every night for the first six months. Um, it was so challenging. The system was similar in a way in terms of medicine is still Western medicine. So the NHS is not that different from the Italian NHS. But just the way people communicate is different. Here they use a lot of acronyms, so the abbreviations and, and, and drawing. And uh, so there was just a way of communicating. I was like, I don't know. I don't know. It took me a <laughs> long time. And the accents, my English wasn't that good at the time. So anytime patients had different accents, I really struggled. And then in acting an emergency everything is really busy and noisy oh yes that was challenging but I was so much in love with the idea of coming here and I, I love that sense of being a migrant there was a pride that I was carrying with me and a sense of achievement I wanted just to go through and, and then see what happens and then it got easier after years what do you think really appealed to you so much about coming to England in the first place I think I can say it to you in the same way people say to me, like, why did you want to come to London? <laughs> because once people hear that I lived in New York, a lot of people here have these aspirations to go to New York. I think for myself, I always, you know, have these dreams of Italy. I love Italian culture, food. The times I've been in Italy, I've loved where I've been. So yeah, what made you want to move from Italy so badly? to London. I loved Italy. I come from Milan, beautiful city. Oh, even better. It's not even, it's an amazing place in Italy as well. <laughs> For me, it was never about, I, I don't like where I am. I loved it. I think there were two major elements. One was the first time I came to London, I was a teenager, I was 18 and I fell in love immediately with um diversity and the multicultural aspect of the city that was so fantastic for me and I felt wow I do want to live in a place where I can look around and I can see freedom and and diversity and so beautiful I've always been fascinated so fascinated by different cultures and it, it's a gift it's a blessing it's a blessing to hear different accents and different languages and see people wearing different stuff so that really fascinated me second i guess I, I did i did want to take a challenge and i was i liked the language and so my when i first came here i only spoke minimal english i could hello how are you <laughs> but anything like how was your trip <laughs> I was already too complex. So that was the level of my first, first trip to London. But I, I thought, oh, wow, that would be amazing, though, to move to a different country. What happens when you're an expat, when you're an immigrant? What, what happens both with the language and with the culture? Do you dream in English? Do you think in English? How do your brain develops? And then I was just fascinated about being uh, surrounded by people that were from different cultures, not my own culture. So that, that concept of uh, immigration was such a drive and a curiosity that I had. So yes, I fell in love with London. I fell in love with the British people, the language. And I was like, 
Here we go. I'm coming. <laughs> so after you've been here now many years, of course, Brexit has happened and maybe controversial, but obviously, at least from my own perception, it, it really feels... I don't know, it felt really insulting to me to all the people that are here working as immigrants, people that are from, like you said, so many different cultures and from all over Europe being told, oh, we want to go back to being just British kind of thing. Maybe it wasn't that direct, but did that influence how you felt about being here at all? It did, actually. What I thought was um, extraordinary in a negative way was on the day of the Brexit result, I felt there was a change almost overnight. Obviously, in the practicalities, you, you don't change anything in the society overnight. But in the collective consciousness, the change can be overnight. And I felt, sadly, there was boom. After many years here, sadly, I would be confronted on a daily basis with question, what are you going to do now? Or this and this. Right. And then the little racist comment came along. Once I was told by somebody, oh, don't worry, people like you are okay. We're always going to need a pizza and spaghetti in this country. Oh, my God. And that wasn't just a one-off. So I guess what Brexit did, in a way, allowed and made some people entitled to say things that maybe they always had there. And those prejudices, which against the Europeans are quite, are quite subtle usually, but they, they, they come out as a racist comment. And uh, sometimes people don't even feel they are being racist. They think they're being funny or they're being truthful. I talk about this in my show, actually. <laughs> this concept like well, well, the, the racism I've been through over the years as a migrant. But yes, so that was a bit of slap on our face as Europeans. I remember reading in the news from the Prime Minister <laughs> and Hennie's uh, group, that our oh, Europeans are being treated in this country a little bit too long as they home. Okay, that's true. Oh. I've been treated as my home. I've also been paid 40% taxes and also contributed to the NHS. But on the positive side, the warmth and the passion that I've seen in some of my British friends have been really heartwarming. So that's why the society got split in this Brexiter and anti-Brexiter. I, I could see, I, I heard like encouraging sentences and, uh, and the, the words are so warm. So something positive came out of it. So here we go. The rest of Europe obviously were like, um, what the fuck? <laughs> Yeah. And obviously Brexit doesn't affect me in the same way as an American being here. But I would say something that probably a lot of Americans don't know is coming here as an American longer term, you realize British people don't as a concept love American people. <laughs> they definitely have this sort of, you know, vision of who American people are. And there's a disdain in a way towards American people. And of course, like you said, once you're one on one with someone, it's very different. Because, of course, I have amazing British friends and there's great warmth from British people once they get to know you. But there, it, it does almost take that, I guess what I'm saying in general with prejudice is it does take that kind of getting to know somebody on a one-to-one -one basis or throwing aside the, oh, she's Italian, we need pizza and spaghetti and realizing that you're bringing something of value and you're bringing medicine and great knowledge and care for the people of this country to this country. It's quite interesting. And in a way, I, I don't know if it's just because my personality, I, I tend always to look into the positive and the opportunities for growth rather than I never really feel a victim of anything, even if, if 
I could potentially be considered a victim. So I've been observing all these racist comments over the years and then with this peak post-Brexit. And it made me just, not just a stronger person per se, but also an almost a more empathic person. Because until you experience racism, possibly it's extremely hard to be fully empathic towards other minorities or other other groups than experience racism on a like maybe much in a much stronger way or in a more frequent way. So I think that made me more empathic as well, more observational of the society, and I learned a lot about human beings because again, what is quite interesting about the racism towards Europeans compared to the racism towards other groups or ethnic groups is that it's more subtle and that's what I found quite interesting so for example I talk about this in my show and I said at a certain point I wonder if people will stop calling me Dr. Pizza and Dr. Spaghetti and how many times has it happened and people call me Dr. Pizza and I would say that's racist like, no, 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 it's funny, it's funny. I was like, would you go to an Indian doctor and call them Dr. Popodum or Dr. Curry? Oh, no, that's racist. I was like, well, exactly. But you see, if you say Dr. Pizza, because the person say that, they think, oh, Italians, they're so funny. And it's funny to me. We love pizza. We love Italians. So that's acceptable. But it isn't, obviously. So it really lacks cultural sensitivity. So I found this quite interesting. And I, I'm, I'm loving the idea of studying this and, and not just be a victim, but quite the opposite, using to become more sensitive and to create a voice to almost, I don't know, educate or share at least. And the beauty of comedy is obviously if you have topics that are strong and upsetting and you make it into comedy, then the impact you can have in society is just uh, potentially unlimited. So yes, it's not even funny, isn't it, Dr. Pizza? Oh, it's a bit funny. <laughs> it's a bit funny. <laughs> I don't know. I guess it depends on how you look at it as well. Like you said, um, it's different levels of things because we can look at, I spoke to a woman for the podcast from the global majority in places she lived faced out and out really strong, horrible things being said to her because of the color of her skin. And she was a black woman married to a white man. And there was all these connotations in places she lived because of that. And so I would never compare this low-key British disdain of me as a white American to what she went through. And maybe in the same way Dr. Pizza is, oh, we could laugh it off. But it still has this element that if you dig a little bit deeper, it's Absolutely. just a stereotype that nobody needs. Absolutely. And then you put together the fact that I'm a migrant and then the fact that I'm a woman. And then you put the two things together. So I have a collection of experiences in my life as a migrant female doctor. <laughs> and what happens when you put them together? Because let's not get started on the sexist aspect of it. Uh, as you always have to fight a bit harder because you're a female doctor. And while male doctors have different privilege actually and it's quite interesting that now when i see you know have a poster of me in the show uh, playing a doctor and it's, it's my face and i'm wearing a stethoscope and there is written in the poster doctor and you have no idea how many men come to me looking at the poster and i was maybe next to the person and say oh you're a nurse i was like no i'm a doctor and that happens in the hospital all the time. If I am next a male nurse, for example, even if I wear a badge, say doctor, patients or visitors or other colleagues as well would immediately think the doctor is the man and I'm the nurse. 
And I love nurses. I don't think I could be a nurse simply because they're way too amazing for me and have a patience that I don't have. So I have an incredible respect. Nothing to, you know, but just saying that that's a prejudice of it's a certain status still uh, predominantly in as, well, okay, clearly the man could do, the woman needs to specify a little bit more. So even when I have a huge bar to say, doctor, <laughs> is it like... <laughs> Amazing. It's amazing how many times it happened. I need to change the poster and just say, by the way, look at this. DR. <laughs> Doctor. It's unbelievable. I guess it's great for comedy fodder, but the fact that this is 2022 and you're still like, hey, um, guess what? Women can be doctors. Whoa. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that shouldn't have to be pointed out. And then you, on the top of this, you put your pretty and then it becomes a different story. So luckily I had, uh, quite, I don't know, middle-aged, the older maybe, male doctor. And he came to me asking about a patient that I was looking after. And he patted on my shoulder and he was like, oh, young girl, how's my patient doing? And I was like, so I actually patted back. I was like, well, no, young girl, I'm the doctor. <laughs> and he was like, oh, yeah, you look very young. Well, I really insist that you use my title, especially in front of the patient. You don't call me young girl. And he got really upset. And then I left the room and then you could see he finished seeing his patient and then he came back to me and I could see it was so uncomfortable for having been confronted on this. And I was really calm. I was very diplomatic. I didn't make a fuss of it. I just said, don't call me younger, just to use my title. So a bit of silence. And then he came to me and it was like, okay, well, thank you very much, young girl. And I was like, what? Wow, so he did it again, the third time. This is the typical scene in a pub. Then somebody's trying to hit on you. You say no. And they're like, oh, no, I'm trying a little bit more. And I was just a senior doctor in the hospital. So I was like, unacceptable. So I went to him, literally, physically. I stood up because I was sitting down. I was like, and with a big, nice smile at me, this sarcastic smile, I'll say. And I was like, what part of me say, use my title and on the younger thing, you're missing? I was like, oh, but it's a compliment. I was like, it's a compliment? Listen, I'm in a professional environment. I don't care what you think of my look. I don't need your compliment. And he just left. Then, on the top of this, Kristen, the, the story doesn't finish. I had a senior nurse, woman, and this really upset me even more. She came to me and she said, but he meant in a nice way. I was like, so you see the double problem. He's doing that as a man. You as a woman, unfortunately, you're actually getting on his side say he meant a compliment. But that's not the point. We are so fed up women and we don't need to be constantly mentioned our look, recognized for our look. I look young. Are you pretty? Don't call me young girl. I'm a doctor on call, as senior as you are, or almost as senior as you are. It doesn't matter, even if I was a student. But you don't call me a young girl. I think this is fascinating. I'm loving it. And all this is going to be material in my shows. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's true. Because fortunately, you are into comedy, so you can make it funny. But at that moment, it's not funny. It's it give me some respect. And the fact that, I don't know, the fact that it's such a compliment at this point to be called young or to say you look young, at least as a doctor, I'm sure it's actually more of a compliment to be recognized for your accomplishments, obviously, but also the fact that you've done it for a while. So to call you young girl, it seems like a 
double negative in the sense that it's, mm. it's more of a compliment because it's calling you young and pretty, but it's so putting you down in the sense that A, it's not necessarily better in society to be young and pretty. It shouldn't be. And B, like based on my experience, I'm not a young girl. Absolutely. I think I just have a really nice skincare system. So I look younger than what I am. But that's not the point. I don't need to look younger. And mainly, I don't care about looking younger. And I don't need any recognition of approval for looking young, older, young. Anyway, I don't need any opinion on my look, especially from a man in a professional environment like men's it. If I'm filming yes. as a commercial model and my look is essential to what we're doing in that moment, then I do appreciate comments. But otherwise, I'm, I'm quite strong on this because I think sometimes men get too much entitled to make compliments or say things. In this case, it was particularly undermining and patronizing. But nice you think it, but uh, and voila, <laughs> just don't tell me, especially in front of the patient. <laughs> I do think you make a good point, though, because it is sort of like, where is it appropriate to make a compliment? And I don't think necessarily being complimented is a bad thing. We all like being told something nice about ourselves. It's just that there's a time and a place. And then Absolutely. there's a reaction that you get from it, which if the reaction is negative, don't keep on it. Yes, that's exactly the point of the story because it was his persistence on it because he, he, he didn't like to be challenged. Then I, I said, no, use my right. title and use the younger. And then the female nurse who actually got on his side said, what well, he meant as a compliment, but no. And that's where we need to be more sensitive culturally everything towards women as well as towards migrants but whatever in this context we in this context we're talking about women but yeah there's so much change to do because all these things they're so they're so integrated in our society oh like how many times have people at the hospital they say oh girl ladies like this i'm like w would you go to a male colleague and call him uh, mm, boys you wouldn't so why do you feel it? <laughs> Especially in that voice. <laughs> like this is like a cat calling. Oh girl. Uh, well, no, 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 no. <laughs> Let's, you see, if, maybe so if that was happening to everybody, I would probably care me a bit less. But because it's so obviously, it's so clearly different towards a female doctor. Yes. And I guarantee you interviewed any female doctor. Any, they would absolutely say the same things, the same stories. It's so widespread. It's so widespread. I'm very sensitive to it, but it's just not always just happening to me. No, 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 everywhere. <laughs> and we need to do a revolution. I'm going to say, I feel like I could go on a tirade about this for days, but one of the questions that comes to mind is you're talking about, and you, you made it very simple. And so then I finished being trainings in my specialism and became an actor as well. How did you find time to train as an actor, as a doctor? <laughs> so I, I started acting 10 years ago and I was almost done with my training in my specialty. I had a couple of years overlapping. But at that time, I had just started acting, so there were more like amateur courses a couple of times a week or something. So it was the first time I was just approaching acting. And still, it was really challenging. I'm telling you, even if like, if you have a day, then you're supposed to finish at 5 p.m. in hospital. I guarantee that they had the course in the evening. There was always an emergency <laughs> of some sort. The level of stress for me to attend 
even in just two evenings a week was really tough. So I learned quite early stage that if I wanted to take acting professionally, I had to, to switch over the percentage of the time I was dedicating. So I quit the medical career and I got into drama school. Mm-hmm. And then I could dedicate. So I reversed the time. So I was doing Monday to Friday drama school and Saturday, Sunday hospital shifts to pay for the drama school. And then that carried on for the first drama school in, in, in London and the second drama school in Paris. So I was coming back with the Eurostar on a Friday night, working in a hospital in weekends and back to Paris on Monday morning for another couple of years. And that's what I've been doing since then. I've been working mainly in acting and uh, on a freelance basis, working in different hospitals. I'm quite senior in the market. And so that fortunately that, that works out quite well. There's, there's quite big demand, especially for anesthetics and intensive care. So I haven't really struggled to find work. But uh, it's been really hard at the very beginning because I basically had no sleep for four or five years. <laughs> I'm just, I'm trying to imagine because I think anybody who's listening that is not familiar with drama school will not know that it sounds I, to me, it just sounds like it should be like, oh, it's so fun. But it's, it's a really intense, both physically, mentally, and emotionally even. The experience is not, oh, I'm going to school and we're pretending to be a tree or something. It's very challenging in every <laughs> aspect. So I'm just trying to imagine, yeah, I just hopped back on the Eurostar and didn't sleep and then came and gave someone anesthesia. Yeah. And they were all fine. Don't worry. You know, I have to say, I drank in a huge amount of coffee on a regular basis. I'm lucky to have a really strong endurance in my body, I think. And that's something actually I'm grateful to Pemsen because I grew up with the idea of working. So I can really carry on for 24, 36 hours with no sleep. I'm not saying healthy is really bad, but at the times that you need it, I made it happen. I was just so committed. And the thing is, because drama schools are very expensive and I did two drama schools, not just one, I had to pay for it somehow. And my family, when I told them I wanted to get into acting, you can imagine, <laughs> you can imagine the, <laughs> the shock. That was so going to be my next question because I thought we haven't really talked about your family, but... If I imagine nine out of 10 families, and I don't know, I'm making my own stereotypes with an Italian family, but I can only imagine this, like, you train to be a doctor, what are you doing? You're bringing shame to <laughs> yeah. the family. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so basically, put the stereotypes and multiply hundreds. <laughs> that's it. That's the cliche. <laughs> so my mom and dad said, so I decided I needed to tell them in person. So I flew to Italy. I said, we need to talk. And they were ready. Okay, what's happening? Actually, they thought I was going to say something like I'm pregnant. <laughs> so there was a double disappointment. <laughs> oh, that's true. I was going to say maybe, uh, I was hoping almost that they thought you were going to say you had something terribly wrong. So then you can make it happy. But then they thought you were going to be pregnant. So you're like, oh, sorry. No, not that either. Exactly. No, no, mama, no, I'm getting married. I was like, oh. <laughs> And then I was like, well, you know, because the full story of my life is I wanted to be an actress when I was a kid from the age of five to the age of 10. And that's another thing I talk in my show. And then situations happened, family issues and I don't know, just life took over. And my backup plan was medicine. So for them, when I brought back the idea of acting, it wasn't a full surprise 
but I I think it was a bit of a shock, especially because I was making quite a good career here in London. And again, as I said, for some reason, I've always been academically very strong as well. So we had a long chat, three hours and a half. <laughs> <laughs> sitting down <laughs> my, my sister would pass by and bring some water at the time they talked they're trying to talk me out a bit a lot and then when I said I'm very convinced they said okay but we are not gonna pay for it <laughs> and I thought okay that's fair enough they already paid for a doctor for a medical school so fair enough so I had to pay for it and uh, and that's why I worked so hard because I went to the second drama school in Paris so it was furious but I was so hungry because now I was in my life in my my 30s and I was like I'm just going back to what I wanted to do as a kid this is like going back home big time and now that I have the courage to, to do this and I'm the means to do this even if that means it's sweating blood I'm just not going to allow anybody to take this from me. So I was willing and I'm still willing to do anything, to sacrifice anything. And, I, and I'm so happy because I look back on these first few years of my training and, and I, feel a, I feel this tenderness towards myself to, to look at like how much sacrifice I put and how motivated I was. Because I finally had the... It's so beautiful when you allow yourself to be who you truly are and it sounded cliche, but for me, it was like, I'm, I'm home. I found it. I'm lucky. Life could stop now. I would be okay because I found it, what I was meant to do. Oh. And so the rest of my life, it completely changed. It was like, I'm just so happy. And again, I love to be a doctor. I still love to be a doctor. It's not like, it was a great backup plan, <laughs> I have to say. But my, so much that I had the possibility to make it happen, even if that meant don't know, 15 years, you know, later than <laughs> what normally people do. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's so amazing. I hear stories every week, basically. I'm talking to somebody who's pursued finding this home is a good way to use your words. But it, it just gave me an absolute chill to hear you say you're home. And it's I don't know. I think this quest that we all have to find the place we belong and not very many people are lucky enough to say medicine was my backup. And then <laughs> I freelance in medicine, but it's absolutely amazing. But you see, the, the other interesting thing that I'm discovering since this overlapping is that in some ways, medicine and art are not that separate. There's a huge parallelism that sometimes is underestimated, which is ultimately both medicine and art are centered around people and the human stories. Mm. And that's, that's the beauty. And that's why I love being a doctor. And that's why I love art. Because it's about people. And since I was a kid, I was fascinated by stories and by humanity and uh, the diversity of the human conditions. And that it's absolutely a privilege in hospital because you come across to anything possible, really. And, and then you can uh, explore that and give a voice to that in art. So in this sense, medicine and art, they're not that far away at all. They're probably really connected. And it's all about the empathy on somebody else's conditions. The tools are different. In medicine, you use different tools. But again, also the, the purpose of it, right? In medicine, you want to have, most likely you want to save somebody's lives or improve lives. But don't you want to do the same in art? In art, we still want to improve somebody's lives. In fact, we, maybe we want to save lives. And in a way, we do save lives. So we may really need it for work. 
And in fact, if anything, I would say you save more lives in art because the effect you can have, the impact is like an algorithm. It can be so exponential, while in medicine sometimes it's very limited to one person and their family. But the impact you can have in art is massive. It's potentially without any limits. And that's all. That's why I see that they're quite close to each other, actually. They're not that far away. <laughs> that is an amazing description. I think I'm going to just leave you now because I'm going to go start studying medicine and then combine the two. Sounds amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I know that you combine the two with your show. We've alluded to your show several times, but I would like to talk about it more specifically because it sounds amazing. And I'm so excited I'm going to get to come see it. So tell us a bit more about the show. So it's a one woman show. I'm playing character, but the more I play the character, the more I realize I'm playing myself. <laughs> All the stories are very much coming from a, a truth somehow. And so it's a character comedy show on the type of stand-up, but I'm telling true stories. Some are a little bit exaggerated. Some are kept as they were. There are moments of pure slapstick comedy, some clownish elements and moments of like more like sad stories and true stories of my experiences with patients. The show is called Medico and it's for the Museum of Comedy until the 1st of March. And uh, for me, this show means uh, the universe, I would say. First of all, because I'm really vulnerable in it because, uh, again, I wrote it. Well, I also, um, I wrote it with Chris Hatt as well. So we wrote it together. But the stories come from... Um, personal experience of who I am as, as a doctor here, as a migrant, as a woman, what it means to become British. I, I talk also when I get the British passport. But mainly it means a lot because the concept of medical comedy is something I discovered during the pandemic. So during the pandemic, my my hours in hospital increased exponentially, as you can imagine, because I worked yes. a lot, a lot, a lot. Yeah. My, I was very much in demand as an intensivist. And, and then to, to keep it short, but in, in the very few months of the pandemic, it was all very hard. And then somehow I discovered the medical comedy concept. I made a web series called My Doctor's Advice, which went really well on film festivals, won awards. But the most important thing was it made me feel better. The people I was working with in the web series, but also it made the people at the hospital better because I would start making more jokes because I was in that mindset. And suddenly I would see people laughing, even behind the PPEs. And I thought, isn't that fantastic? Right. It's, it's like we are in the war in this incredible new circumstances where it's a catastrophe, it's apocalyptic. And then I, I make a joke and I see this. The only thing I can see are the eyes. And they're laughing, they're smiling. And then I had people who watch my videos that would come, like colleagues, nurses and doctors, and say, oh my God, I feel so much better. Oh my God, thank you so much. Today's shift was better because of your presence. I was like, well, not my presence, but the jokes, the laughter. And that really made me realize something that we know rationally, but I felt it statically. I experienced that I, even in the worst tragedies, you can always find some lightness. You can always find a moment of joke, some humor, and that can yeah. be so crucial and life-saving. And that's when I thought, okay, I need to make a show because that's my drive. I want the public 
to reconnect with medical world in a way that is a little bit lighter, a little bit lighter. And I have the, this message. If I can laugh because I've been inside, I've seen the people dropping dead like leaves in autumn. I guarantee in, in, in a, it's a dramatic thing what we went through as hospital workers. But I can tell you, art and comedy has kept me sane and motivated and excited about life and not with this strong appetite for life. And I want to share that. And that's why I'm making a show that which is medical comedy. And I really hope people are seeing that and uh, the audiences will experience a bit of snapshot of what, what that means and be helpful for them. <laughs> Putting on a one-person show is not a light thing to do either. As far as this particular show, what have you done so far and what's the plan for it going forward? So I did a warm-up run last week in a pub of the Hope in Islington. A fantastic venue. I highly recommend you. The, the team was amazing. The artist, the director, and the crowds were great. Now I'm doing the Museum of Comedy for a few days uh, through February up to the 1st of March. And then I'm, I'm basically carry on touring the show until it goes well. And so far, I got plans the first year. Some of the dates still need to be arranged. They're under negotiation. So I'll go line up definitely the festivals, the Brighton, the Edinburgh. I'm going to go outside London for a few dates. And then I'm going to add some extra London dates. So keep tuned. <laughs> <laughs> And for people that are in the UK, I will definitely include some information that they could go see it. It looks like such a fun, and like you said, I love that it's the hardships and the sadness, but that we can always make something a little bit lighter than maybe it actually was. Yes, I had some feedbacks that really touched my heart last week. I was very lucky to have some positive feedbacks about, oh, this is funny, it's hilarious, fabulous. But you know, I had people say, I cried. That was very poignant. I had somebody say, oh my God, you inspire me. Because one said, I'm a nurse. And the other one said, oh, I'm a doctor. And now I feel inspired. Maybe I can also expand my, I don't know, my interest. And I was like, wow, this is incredible. Having people cry in a comedy show. It's good to cry in a good way. <laughs> that could be a bad thing, but crying in a good way. <laughs> crying, but also laughing. <laughs> Very good. As I warned you, one of the things I always ask people on the show is for a quote. So did you bring a quote for me today? <laughs> I have thousands of quotes. I'm very much a quote person. I use quotes in my changing room when I do shows. I use also quotes from friends. But uh, there is one quote that has been going on with me, I guess, all my life. I don't even remember when it started. I must have been really young. And it's a really cliche quote. Everybody knows it. But that really resonates for me and still does. It's from Harry Ford and he says, whether you think you can or you can't, then you're right. And that quote is so important for me yes. because I think on a very early stage in my life, I realized that I could really be the master of my life and not just, oh, maybe I can do something. I, I think I always felt if I really believe I can and I put the work and I'm in alignment with what I'm good at and what I can offer to the communities and to the society, then things will work out. So I think that quote is very important because it's extremely empowering and I always refuse to put myself in a victim situation. Even when I failed in my life, I always thought, okay, but I can, I can. Maybe I couldn't now, but I will, I can. And so that sense of it's possible, 
it's possible. I love that quote. It's simple, but it's with me. It's as part of my, you can, if you were taking a blood test, you would find it in myself. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I do think sometimes the quotes that are the most popular are the most popular because they resonate the most, because it's, it's something that it is something as simple as a, a mind shift sometimes that changes whether you're able to do something. Yes. So is there anything else that you would want to say to people that are listening? Yes. I guess it's somehow to do again with my show, but I guess in general, uh, about making things happen. So I had a dream almost a year ago, which was to do a solo show and I made it happen. And now I'm literally living the dream. Um, it's been so far the best thing in my life and so far the hardest thing in my life. And I guess what I want to say is I learned from experiences that life doesn't work on, um, oh, I wish, or I should, or what do you think? No, I want to, and I would love if my work was seen by people as a source of inspiration for saying, okay, first of all, do not ask permission anybody to be who you want, whether it is that to be a woman, to be a migrant, to be an artist, to be a doctor, to change your career to do whatever you want. You do not need anybody's approval. Almost you don't even need your self-approval. <laughs> and number two, I just, just really do it. Really do it. It's I do a lot of cold training. I jump into the cold sea and there is a risk that my own voice took me out of doing things. So I train myself because when that moment comes and you want to take an opportunity and you're scared, you have to do it. It doesn't matter how scared you are. It doesn't really matter. And it can be you, you terrified. It doesn't matter. So I'm very much don't listen to anybody trying to talk you out of doing things, even your own voice, and do it. Because it's quite phenomenal what you discover and how empowering it is when you take life by um, taking risks and then just living fully. Because then every moment is just, it's just full, it's precious. It's, it's amazing. I ha I'm lucky to have an appetite for life that is extraordinary. And I'm so blessed to be able to be on stage and privileged to perform in front of people, with people, for people. It's the joy of my life. Thank you for everything you're doing, both saving lives through acting in comedy and saving lives perhaps a bit more literally, but maybe not through being a doctor. It's really cool. And I love your appetite <laughs> for life. So I'm really glad you came to talk to me today. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm very much inspired by your work. So thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really honored. Thank you. Because I'm so excited about your show, I'm going to say it one more time that it's Medico and that people that are in the UK that can see it before the 1st of March or as it's touring around, definitely go see it. And thank you again, Stefania. Thank you. Thanks again for listening. The second chapter is just getting started, so your subscriptions and five-star reviews mean so much. The second chapter is brought to you by Slackline Productions, a production company dedicated to redressing the balance of women's stories being told and who's telling them, with a specific focus on women 35+. For more about Slackline, visit slacklineproductions.co.uk. Thanks again.